Today I'll be reading for you and preaching for you out of the book of Matthew, a short um, break from the book of Acts, um, to preach on the birth of Jesus Christ. Here now, the reading of God's Word in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reason to celebrate this great hope and proclamation that even in the name of Jesus Christ, that we are reminded that he is our Savior, that he will save his people from their sins. And that even now, as we're able to come to you according to his name, you are with us. He is with us and you are with us because you are and he are one. And he has prayed that we would be one with you. May it be that we would understand the greatness of this reality. And may we respond in our life with prayer, praise, and proclamation until he returns and we are gathered fully in unity with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In a sense, this sermon today is a bit of a regifting or a recycling of a sermon that was um, an, uh, that I had an opportunity to preach this past Friday. I've adjusted it a bit uh, so that it would be more appropriate for our particular congregation. But some of you are here that were there on Friday, and you might want to. To, you might think you might want to just turn off some of my family and some others that were there. Um, but I encourage you to, to maybe go further, not away from, but f- further into or deeper into is the right word I'm trying to come up with. Go deeper into the particular passage instead of further away. To go further along with me as we walk in this passage together. As we see here, and I've even mentioned in the prayer, names have tremendous significance. Some of you may have names of significance that have been passed down to you from generation to generation. Some of you may be named after relatives. Some of you may be named after someone famous that your family member um, appreciated, someone that had some kind of virtue or some kind of history in their life. You know, it's funny some of the people that you meet that they'll name their children, and it seems unusually strange, but it's 
more and more I'm running into talking to people that their parents name them after movie characters. There's a, a particular guy that I um, run into occasionally, and um, his name is Jacob. And I said, oh, you know, is, is that from the Bible? And he said, no, it's from a horror movie. And I was like, are you serious? I said, yes, it's, it's from a horror movie. One of the, the 80s and 90s, there's a Jacob, and you don't have to tell me which one if you know who it is. But that the, the mother actually named his, her child after um, the bad guy or the crazy guy in a horror movie. Um, so it could be, have, you know, this doesn't necessarily apply to people perfectly that those names of significance are encouraging names, but we know that names tend to have some kind of representation of a positive virtue, either a memory of someone in the past or a virtue, even the word itself. Some people have a name that is a virtue um, or something that reminds them of something of goodness. And God is no different when he chose to name his son Jesus. That there was a potency and meaningfulness, the greatest meaning of all things, of, in his name. And we see it here as the angel proclaims to Joseph in a moment of maybe somewhat confusion and disorderliness in, in Joseph's mind. He just found out that his betrothed wife is with child and he knows it's not his child. That the spirit comes and is telling Joseph not to be worried, but also giving him marching orders to do certain things, to continue on in hope, to trust God in this matter, but also to specifically name this child with a meaningful name that would proclaim the purpose of this child, which is that he will save his people from their sins. As I've mentioned this to the young men who've been a part of a study, a covenant study with me, we talked about this name Jesus and the meaningfulness of this definition of his name. And also for those who were there Friday, this is something that I really hope that the people that are within the hearing of my voice will remember about the name of Jesus. So if you leave with anything today from the sermon, I pray that it will be that it will resonate in your mind that the name Jesus means He will save his people from their sins. And I think breaking it up that way tells us a tremendous amount about the work of salvation for us. It's an encouraging thing to hear that proclamation. But not only in the name of Jesus, but also the name Emmanuel, that God with us, that he is with us. And you put those names together, we see that the name Jesus is showing the purpose of Jesus and the name Emmanuel is the promise, the encouraging promise of him being with us. And he is with us because he will save his people from their sins. It's a bit of a, hopefully it's somewhat of an Advent gift for you all for me to do this sermon for you today, not to just encourage you in the hope but it's my intention to really practice that I might be able to get this sermon down to a shorter amount. And also to be a bit of encouragement to you that as we think about this breakdown of he will save his people from their sins, I want to put it in the context of a Christmas party as we look at the different components of that, that God is putting together the greatest party of all parties. When we think of the name Emmanuel, of God being with us, one of the things that is in the word party is party. 
is that there's a party of people, there is a gathering of people, that there is a fellowship and communion of people who are celebrating in a goodness and a delight of being together. And surely of all parties that we would want to be a part of is the party of Jesus Christ in the celebration of being with God. And he's the one who's throwing it. That first phrase, he will. We can see two things in that he will. is one that God has a will, and he will accomplish his will. He is the one who's going to be inviting the guest to his party. He's the one who is paying for this party. He is the one who is organizing this party. And so therefore, we would delight in knowing that he is the one that's behind this, and he is going to be the one to make it so. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, looking at verse 16 through 24. Because in that, which is really just a copy and paste with some adjustments of how he handles a lot of the epistles when Paul is writing to the churches. Here he's writing to the church in Thessalonica. But in this particular articulation of something that's very thematic in all the other epistles, he describes for us the will of God. As we think about that he will, it is important for us to understand why does God want to throw a party and have a party of his people together? What does he desire to occur at this party? What is the purpose of this party? And we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 the components of what is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. Reading from verse 16, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. When we see this particular passage laid out and see what the will of God is, is that he desires, and this is just a really a component of the overall chapter, and I encourage you to go back and look at 1 Thessalonians 5. There's a lot more here that is a part of God's will, but narrowing it down for the purposes of our time this morning, first I want to look at that God desires for us to rejoice always, that he delights for us to have a joy in our heart. Now, even when I preach this on Friday, I know that that's a a tough sell to encourage people to think about the whole concept of having joy always. And for those of you who are here this morning during our prayer time, you know that I had very little joy in wanting to come here this morning. But God desires that we would have a joy in our hearts that in all things and all ways that there would be a joy, that it would be a sustaining joy, a continuing joy. But then let's move on to verse 17, that we would pray without ceasing. When we think about a party and coming together in a Christmas party, we 
would think that we would have communication with each other and correspondence with each other. God desires to be in communication with us. That oneness and fellowship that he desires is that we would be communicating with each other. Often when we see that pray without ceasing, the first thing that comes into our mind, or at least comes into my mind, maybe not so much you, is not so much an encouragement, but a burden of guilt and admonishment that I don't pray enough. You know, it's kind of like thinking about your mom. I know, like, oh, I haven't called my mom enough. But it's even worse when we consider the fact that we haven't prayed enough. But what I want you to see here is not an admonishment, not that you shouldn't receive some admonishment from it if your prayer life is weak, but that it is God's will in Christ Jesus for you to be in a communion with you, to be in conversation with you. He delights to be in conversation with you. He's not just trying to make you feel guilty like maybe some of your mothers might want to do as soon as they pick up the phone. Like, it's been a long time since you've called. No, he delights in it. He delights to be in communication with you. And in Christ Jesus, this is what he is hoping for in this particular gathering and party is that there is communication and that we would be giving thanks in all circumstances. He wants to be victorious in your life, that everything that you encounter, every circumstance that you encounter, every comment that you receive from another person, a family member or a friend or a co-worker, that you won't be just that you automatically are riled up, but that you are looking in all circumstances in thanksgiving. For this is the will of Christ, for God in Christ Jesus for you. And then look at these two next verses together, 19 and 20. Do not quench the spirit and do not despise the prophecies. Well, as he is sending out this invitation, calling his people together, he is doing that by the calling and conviction of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want you to turn away this calling. He doesn't want for you to turn away this comfort. This is what Jesus has proclaimed about the Holy Spirit. That it will both convict us of sin and comfort us in his forgiveness. He doesn't want us to flee away from that or to put that fire out or that movement out by quenching that calling of the Holy Spirit. And that we would not despise the prophecies, but that we would delight in the prophecies. The prophecies that he will draw us to repentance of sin, but also the comfort of his forgiveness. That wouldn't be a a thing that we would despise, but it would be a thing that we would delight in. That we would delight to be in his word. That as we share his word, which all of the word is about Jesus Christ, that we would delight in that, both in the law and in the remembrance that Jesus kept the law on our behalf and died for our sins according to the law so that we may have forgiveness in communion with him, that we would test everything in light of that prophetic word, that everything that we would encounter in our mind or in our hearts or in our mouth or in the proclamations of other people and circumstances, that we would test those things, to test everything and therefore hold fast the good things and therefore abstain from the evil things in verse 22. It says that may the God of peace himself sanctify you. 
See, as we look at that particular list of what is in God's will for us, we may be overly burdened by realizing this is not possible by us. And he quickly tells us in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. What does sanctify mean? To cleanse you. To make you presentable. To remove from you the imperfections. These things that we automatically are drawn to recognize, even as we consider the will of God, we realize that we can't come to this party because this party is a party of holiness. If the Father is going to be there, if the Son is going to be there, if the Spirit's going to be at this party, we can't be allowed into this party because of our filth. We don't have the right clothes to be able to come into this party. But it says here that the God of peace himself, I love that Paul put that in there, that God himself is going to sanctify you completely. And he will make your whole spirit in soul, in body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just looking that we would just, he would just put on some clean clothes, that he would wash us up or maybe dabble around on some of the dirt on our face, but more so like what Peter recognized in Jesus when he was washing the feet. He was like, just wash all of me, every single bit of me. Here, Paul is telling us that God is going to sanctify our spirit and our soul and body. Everything will be made perfect and ready for the coming of the Lord in the, the final and complete part of this party. And then he says that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It is by the name of God, by the power and the authority and the honor and the might and the righteousness of God that this is going to occur. This must happen by God, to maintain the glory of his name. We are not faithful to do this. We're not faithful enough to make it to this party. But God himself is faithful, and if he calls you, you will be able and you will come to this party. He will surely do it. Not just he will do it, he will surely do it. It is here for your encouragement to know that he will save his people from their sins. So we know that God's will is for us who are his people to be there. We know what God desires that as we are in fellowship with him, we know what is required for us to be there. And we are told and assured by the words he will that this will happen. There is no doubt. His name is dependent upon it. His power and his glory is dependent on it. And we can have every bit of assurance that this will occur. But it still leaves the question for us. Are we, are we his people? And we see there that he will save his people. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think it does have throughout the scriptures different sections of meaning. For the Jews, it was for the Jews, for the people of the promise. That they were being reassured that the things that they've been hoping in throughout the law and the prophets is occurred by Jesus Christ. Well, also through the prophecies, it spoke about those who are far off. It is talking about the Gentiles, that they will also be invited to this party. And then as we see the proclamation, it is for all those who believe. So as we are here today in this particular place where we are those who are far off, we, we fit in that category. We wonder, are we a part of his people? Are we a part of this party? 
Well, at most parties, what kind of things are typically, what kind of things happen at a Christmas party? What's a, a common thing that some of you are having Christmas parties or going to Christmas parties? What's something that you typically take to a Christmas party? Presents. Presents. You take gifts. And what is usually on a gift, unless it's one of those gifts where you're doing like the white elephant, but if you're going, what is, what's usually written on a gift? A name tag. Sorry, my throat's really dry. So if you have gifts there, and if those gifts have a particular name on it, and if you could peer in through the window to say, well, I wonder if I'm part of this party, you could look and see maybe if there are gifts with your name on it. I know often throughout my practice, if I know that there are gifts under the tree, if you come and you're trying to find a chair somewhere, you sit close to the trees and you can try to pretend that you're not looking down, but you're... You're looking around. Like, does the big box, it, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, does the big box have my name on? There's a couple of big boxes there. So we want to know whose name's on there. Well, I'm here on good authority to tell you that I overheard a conversation with our brother and our father talking about this party, and I heard words like gave and give and receive, and keep, and kept, and have. And in that particular word, I realized that he, they were talking about gifts for those who are going to be at that particular party. And I want to go in and maybe peer into that particular conversation a little further, much like what we would do on a Christmas Eve. If you were like me, you would tiptoe into the living room and maybe look and see what was behind the wrapping. We're going to go into the wrapping of John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. And that conversation, one of the greatest conversations that we see that Jesus had with the Father were all of these words. And I want you to listen out like you would on the weeks leading up to Christmas. I want you to listen out for these words of gave and give and have and received I want you to listen because typically when you hear the word give, you're looking for what happens after give because you want to know what are you receiving so that you may keep it. In John chapter 17 in verse 6, Jesus tells his father, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came for you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now stopping there, we see here very quickly there's a lot of exchanging of gifts. In fact, there's a lot of re-gifting going on. Jesus is the most ultimate of re-gifters. But typically that connotation has a negative connotation because we usually think that somebody doesn't want that gift, so they give it to someone else, like at a white elephant gift exchange, or giving it the one thing you don't want so that you can get what you want. It's not like that. I want you to be thinking about this re-gifting like maybe that precious jewelry or that precious gun that came from a grandparent that gets passed down from generation to generation. This is far greater. The one thing that you see here is that the God the Father gave his people to Jesus. 
He has given that over. This was within the power of God, going back to this, he will. This is something that we know from Ephesians, that God has loved and cherished. We are his people from before the foundations of the world, and he is giving that to his son. And what the son says he has done, I have given them your name. I've manifested your name. I've revealed your name, but I've given them your name. He's also saying that I have given them your word. The word that you gave me, I have given to them. And they have received it. He's talking specifically about his disciples of those who are in front of him now that he is proclaiming the word to. He says they have received the word and now they know the truth and they believe that you gave me, that you sent me. And then he says, this is who I'm praying for. In verse 9, it says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here, Jesus is asking the Father. He is seeing that he will be going to the cross. He sees that he will be lifted up to the right hand of the Father, and he is asking the Father to keep them in this gift that has been given to them, which is the name of Jesus Christ. The name is the power and the authority. It is the ownership of these gifts. When we look at the gifts around the tree, then all of the gifts have Jesus' name on it. But for those who are his people who are going to be a part of this party, they must bear his name. Because only through the name of Jesus Christ can we have access to the Father. When we read in the scriptures that God loved us before the foundation of the world, it is because he loved his son before the foundation of the world. Now his mindfulness and knowledge of being who he is, your name followed into that. Your person belonged in that. But the reason why he can love you is because the son was with him. It says in John 1, 1 that he was with them in the, begin, in the beginning. And he loved him. They loved each other. That is where that love resonates from. So when we look under the tree, we don't want to just see our name alone. We must see the covering of Jesus' name placed on us. That gives us the power and the authority to not only bear the name, but to truly have the word. We move on. It says, but now I'm coming to you. Whoops. Yes. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy. Remember what the will of the Lord is? The will of the Lord is that we would rejoice. What would, we, what would that rejoicing maintain? Well, it would be maintaining the very joy of Jesus Christ, that it would be fulfilled in themselves. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
Because I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but what does he ask? He asks that you would keep them from the evil one, to abstain from every evil, to be away from the evil one, to be away from the effects and the destruction of the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. As this gift that was re-gifted from the Father to the Son is given to us, as we are given this word, we are seeing here that Jesus himself, as he is making his petition to the Father, is that at this particular gathering of his people, this party of his people, that it is going to be that gift of the word that sanctifies us. That the truth of the word is what will cleanse us. Well, if it is the word of God that cleanses us, then we want to be near that word. We should not despise the prophecies. We should delight in the prophecies. Now, we're seeing here that as Jesus is in this high priestly prayer, that it is his work that is saving us. We know that it is that he will save us from our sins We know that it is God doing this and his son doing this and the work of the spirit that is doing this. But the component, the the mechanism of how that we are sanctified, how we have sanctification is going to be by the cleansing of God's word. It is a gift that when we have it before us, we should be so excited to have it. It is what is taking that sin out of us. It is what is showing us what our sin is. And for us to despise it, one, for us to see it to be a burden to be in, but then secondly, to pull back when we are admonished by the word is against the very celebration of what we are here for in this party of his celebration of his son. There are a lot of gifts. You know, the thing in our home now is not what's under the tree. We don't have any gifts under the tree. It's what's on the emails from Amazon. <laughs> you know, like, don't look at that email. Don't look at that email. <laughs> don't look at that one. And then, you know, then the same thing if you got a wife that's saying, oh, I need to check and see if we got the refund for this. And like, how am I going to do that without looking if there's, <laughs> you know, what gift is what? But you kind of think, well, I saw that. I saw this. Is that for me? <laughs> was that gift for me? Or was, was that for someone else? And you start daydreaming of what it would be like to have that particular, oh, maybe I'm getting that. And oh, that'd be so nice. But do we delight in our time in the word like that? Do we think like, oh, I just can't wait until I'm just kind of, you know, in a moment of, of focus where I can just be in his word. I can't wait to where I can be in his word and, and God continued to convict me. Do we open the Bible? Lord, hit me. <laughs> hit me. <laughs> Cleanse me. I know that it's there. And I need to be in a place of repentance. I want to be cleansed. I want to be one as you and this, the Father are one. And the Son are one. I want to be in that place where we're at the delight 
of the communion of the party. Well, I was telling you that that particular prayer was for those particular people. Well, it's also for us because in verse 20, we see as we listen in on this conversation that Jesus was having with his father, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through who? Their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, I are in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying that those disciples, as they re-gift this word that they receive from the Son, that he received from the Father, that we will be re-gifting it, that they will be re-gifting it, and that re-gift has now come to you. It has been repackaged over and over again with the power of that particular prayer, the sanctification that comes from that word and spirit is being given to us now as we are in his word. And if Jesus is praying that that will be what sanctifies us and cleanses us and replaces the lies with truth, we know with certainty he will surely do it. He will cleanse his people. And it says that those who now have his word, they believe. And he says, and they have it now so that they'll re-gift it and that the world will believe. It doesn't stop there. There are more gifts there under this tree. In verse 22, it says, the glory that you have given me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you loved me. He's talking about the glory. Sorry, I skipped a big phrase there. Verse 22 again, let me start over. The glory you've given me, I have given to them. The very glory of God, the very glory of God the Father, the very glory of the Son that the Son put aside to become flesh with us, he has now received that glory by the accomplishment of the cross and death and the resurrection and the reign of Jesus. He is saying, I am giving this glory to them. I am re-gifting it to them and to those who believe that they may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That glory that comes to us, that came from the Father to the Son, that comes to us is the very love of the Father for his Son. That is why I say with great certainty that when he loved us before the foundation of the world is because he loved his Son and that has been given specifically to those who believe. So we have his joy, we have his glory, we have his love because of what has been accomplished through his priestly role of dying for us, petitioning now the Father to fulfill the very prayer he prayed then that is now being accomplished through the proclamation and the hearing of the word and the spirit enlivening that word in our lives. So what are we to do if you've had this word proclaimed to you and if you are being very much like those who are in the presence of 
Peter in Acts 2, and you've heard about the resurrection. You've heard about the proclamation that Jesus made before he went to the cross. And you see those particular things laid out in his word. What is there for us to do if he's saying he will do this? Well, we go back to the prophecies to see what that response looks like. When you get invited to a party, what should you do? What do they typically ask for you to do? RSVP. (laughs) To respond. Please respond. Please let us know that you got this. Do you want to be a part of this party? In the prophet Joel, as it is repeated in Acts 2, by the preaching of Peter. So I'm trying to bring this back to Acts In verse 21 of chapter 2, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, understand that this calling upon the name of the Lord is not just some simplistic, I say in the name of Jesus, I trust in the name of Jesus, just flippantly throwing that around. That if we look into God's word, the calling upon the name of the Lord is a very powerful and transformative thing. I've told some of you probably before when I was in, in high school, I remember a friend of mine that I was in Bible club with, and he was very charismatic. And when the Dr. Pepper machine would get messed up, he would hit it. And he'd say, in the name of Jesus, undo the Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and I was even then, even in my immaturity, I just thought that was really stupid. <laughs> but he was serious. And the Dr. Pepper would come out and he would think it was, you know, because he did that. (laughs) If we go back to where this is first proclaimed, we go back to Genesis. And we go back to Cain and Abel. And we see where Cain killed Abel. And it seemed like that the hope of the promise of salvation was quickly quickly being extinguished because God had told Eve... (laughs) that your seed would crush the head of the serpent and it looked like that the seed crushed the other seed and that now it's done. But then we had Seth and Enosh. Right after we have the explanation of Cain and Enoch and we see that that line is going awry, we have Seth and we have Enosh. And you see a contrast of what's going on with Enoch with Enosh, and it says that his people called upon the name of the Lord. They called upon the salvation of God's people. They called upon the hope and the power that God would save his people. Their lives became transformed, and it said that they worshipped him. They trusted in God's proclamation they trusted in the power of his name and they worshiped his name you see this again with abraham that is abram is called by god and has been given the covenant of god it says that after this accomplished that abraham called upon the name of the lord it was a transformation from pulling from the direction of the world He was not taking them out of the world, but they were not going to be of the world. They were going to live according to the name of God in hoping in a name that they did not yet know, which was going to be Jesus. This calling upon the name of the Lord is serious business. It's transformative. It is taking over our lives. 
And when we think about this RSVPing, let us first start out with the letter R and understand that it is a calling to repentance. It is a calling to renounce the world, to seek a renewal of our focus and our worship, to no longer be worshiping ourselves, but to be worshiping in the hope of Jesus Christ, that we would be rejoicing, that we would remember that in all of our struggles and all of our battles, both in good and bad, even if we're having difficulties, but also when we are having good things, like back then when his disciples were able to take demons out and able to show forth great signs, he says, you know, you need to just be focusing on rejoicing that you are a part of this party, that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's R. S, that we would seek salvation, that we would truly long for salvation, that we would seek the salvation from our sinful state and our continual sanctification and that saving us of our sins now. That's why this sermon preaches for both the lost and for the saved. It would be continuing to remind you that you should be seeking to be saved from your sins that are burdensome to you now that are so burdensome to you now that you don't even want to be here sometimes. That we would seek shepherding in his word. That we would seek the people of God that he has appointed, that he appoints to shepherd you, whether it's your family or whether it's your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room or whether it's your pastor or your deacon. That you would seek that shepherding, that you would seek their counsel, that you would seek to be guided, not because they're so great. Me and Dave, we can sit and just complain about how weak we are, but God has appointed us to help shepherd you in this salvation, that we would seek to be filled with the Spirit. And then V, that we would view victory over vanity. That our minds and that our focuses would not be so called up on vain things. We see this proclamation given to us throughout the epistles to stop wasting our time looking back at the world, to stop looking back at Egypt, to stop looking at the world and longing for the things that are falling apart that we know bring nothing but death and oppose the very word of God. And then P, to pray, to pray earnestly, To pray alone, to pray together, to pray with your family, to pray with your spouse, your brother and sister, to pray with your neighbor, and to praise the Lord. Even this morning as I pour out my heart to you and just kind of rambly weakness to hear you take petition to praise even. To be reminded of the things to be thankful for. Praise the Lord yourself and before others. That is why we need to be together. We need to hear the praises of God come out the lips of one another. And then proclamation. Continual proclamation of who he is. The proclamation of this particular hope. That it is true that when we repent and when we are baptized... In the name of Jesus Christ. Do you get that? When you look at Acts 2, when it says, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That means all of those things that I'm talking about, that as we consider the name on that gift, the power of that name is that it is transformative. It's not just a matter of get out of hell 
free card. It's a matter of being transformed into his worship, to be baptized, to be brought into his body, into his service. And it says, this is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all those who call upon the name of the Lord, for all those who respond to this invitation, to this grand party. This table embodies nearly all of that. We think about RSVPing, this table does that. We come to this table recognizing our sin. We need his body and his blood to cover us for our sins. We should be hungry. Are we seeking that salvation and sanctification? Are we seeking the shepherding of the shepherd by the appointment of his under-shepherds? That's why we only do this in the church. Are we seeking to be those who view the victory of what Jesus has accomplished over our fleshly hungers of this world? Do we come understanding through our repentance that it is a body of repentance that is required, that we must understand that we sin against each other and that we desire to be not only in communion with the host of the party, but that by all the guests that are covered by the name of Jesus Christ. It is a communion of his people. And then when we do this, when we prayerfully come with repentant hearts, when we prayerfully come with victorious hope, we are proclaiming the victory of his death until he returns. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the name of Jesus Christ and that you are with us because of the work and the rest that Jesus has accomplished in his name. Let us now come to you with great hope and humility for the work and wonder that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand now.